Welcome to Listen, University of Oulu's podcast called An Interview with Honorary Doctor. In this podcast, we will get to know more closely the lives and careers of honorary doctors who will be conferred in the 11th conferment ceremony of the University of Oulu. The university has invited persons for conferment who have collaborated significantly with researchers in the University of Oulu. In addition, invitations have been made to persons who have distinguished themselves significantly in other ways in the society and for the benefit of the university. Conferment of an honorary doctorate is the highest honor the university can confer to a person. My name is Simo Kekäläinen, and our guest today will be honorary doctor Professor Mats Paulsson. Welcome, Mats. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are very glad to have you here. And I just want to say for the listeners that for the purposes of this interview, we've agreed to call each other by our first names. So I will be talking to Mats and Mats, you will be talking to Simo. Yep. That's wonderful. So we'll be starting out with a little bit of your background and your education. And I think my very first question for you would be uh, about your background in the academia. So you have studied physiological chemistry at the Lund University in Sweden, but biochemistry and academic studies, were they always a clear choice for you? Yeah, I mean, I actually studied medicine and physiological chemistry came in for my dissertation work. But when I started studying medicine, I already had the idea that maybe I would be going into research rather than into uh, clinical practice. But I felt that it was a very broad and useful training that you get as a medical doctor. And it always gives you the way out if you later on find that academia is not your thing or you know it becomes too competitive, whatever, then you can always earn your living as a physician. So uh, the big decision for me was really if I should go into clinical practice or if I should go into full-time research and teaching. And in retrospect, I'm actually very glad that I decided on research and teaching because I've always enjoyed it. And I see my colleagues who try to do both and they become very busy persons with very little private life. Just as you said, the careers of a physician might be uh, many, but you wanted to go into research yeah. and teaching. Was yeah. there a special moment where you sort of had a eureka moment and you thought to yourself, this is going to be my career? I was actually kidnapped. I was in a seminar with our old professor in the Department of Biochemistry, Sven Gardell, and uh, after that seminar, where I was just an undergraduate student, Sven came up to me and said, I think you should start working in the lab with us. And uh, that's the way this started. And I got so fascinated by the lab and by the people there that I stayed on. And uh, that was a connective tissue laboratory. And that's the way I came into connective tissue or extracellular matrix with another word. And... Um, you know, so I was too naive and too junior at that time to do any active choosing. But in retrospect, I have been happy to end up in that research area because I still find it fascinating. And also the community, the connective tissue community is a very close-knit one and, uh, you know, very open scientific community. 
So in this case, the kidnap was made in goodwill, so to say. Absolutely. <laughs> you already mentioned that the community is really important in this area of research. Yeah. Um, so what are your methods for collaboration specifically? I mean, I collaborate a lot. I have very few publications that are not uh, collaborative publications, but I like to be spontaneous about it. I mean, you get to know a lot of people uh, at uh, scientific meetings and in other contexts, and every so often you see that you have shared interests or that uh, one uh, scientist, the one lab has methodology that we don't have and so on. And then we spontaneously uh, you, you know set up collaboration and um, what is even more common these days that I don't like so much these are the things like European Union networks and so on where there is some kind of big political aim behind it and then everybody has to try to fit in to you know get onto the money pot so to say and uh, I find these kind of networks often a little bit artificial and uh, uh, you know, in end effect, not so productive or almost counterproductive. So to my mind, the old way of collaborating by truly having shared interests is still the best way. Uh, well, my next question is, of course, going to be linked to Olo. And yeah. just as what you said before, I am maybe hoping that, you know, when I ask how has your connection to Olo been formed, that it, it will be the old traditional way. Or was it yeah. so? <laughs> it was so. I mean, already when I was a PhD student, I actually met Kari Kiviriko. Uh, you know, the connectivity community, in particular the Nordic countries, is a rather close one. So, you know, my uh, doctor supervisor, uh, Dick Heinegård, of course, knew uh, Kari, and Kari visited in Lund, and... Um, you know, that was uh, my first contact, but and then over the years I have known a number of the people in Ulo, later on Carl Trygvason, who was, you know, at that time in Ulo, now in Singapore and was involved in starting up the Biocenter. And in recent years, it's of course been Taina Pilayaniemi and Johanna Mülleharju have been my close contacts. And we have perhaps not had so many lab collaborations, but we have you know, often been in contact over other things and helped each other. And uh, I think this in end effect led up to the thing that I've been sitting on, on a couple of advisory committees up in Ulo first for the Biocenter and later on then for, for the Cell Matrix uh, Excellence Cluster. So the collaboration has been very deep from your side, so yeah. that's what we yeah. can say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, since we touched this uh, subject of Olo, I could also ask, uh, from your perspective, uh, what has been done in Olo that has made an impact? Yeah, I mean, I don't know all aspects of the University of Olo. Obviously, I know the connected tissue community up there, which is, you know, excellent and has been excellent for, for 30, 40 years. I mean, since very early on, I think it was Kari Kiviriko who started up this tradition, but it's been maintained at a very high level. And when it comes to collagen biochemistry and to particularly to the uh, modifying enzymes involved in collagen biosynthesis. I, I mean, Ulo is one of the absolute top addresses worldwide. 
then I have also seen when I've been an advisor up there that you have a very strong epidemiological research that you collect large patient cohorts. And I suppose you have a rather homogeneous genetic background and so on in Northern Finland, which makes this a fantastic resource. And I think this kind of epidemiological research has been a other very strong aspect. Then another thing that I have noticed is how dynamic your transnational work is. I mean, you have a fantastic science park with lots of startup uh, companies, and some of them have been very successful. And, you know, when I compare this to us in Cologne, you know, a big university, we, we had 50,000 undergraduate students, and still we have nothing like you have when it comes to translation and to startup companies. So, so that's extremely impressive. That's absolutely wonderful to hear. And now as we move to discuss uh, the topics of your research area, we're talking about biomedical area. Yeah. We, we are seeing many changes, but also the role of biomedicine in society becoming more and even more important than it has ever been. Yeah. Um, I could ask... Um, how has the development of technology, in your opinion, changed the importance of biomedical research and your working methods? I mean, it's, you know, I've been active for about 40 years in, in science, and in these years, there have been fantastic changes. And I, I think for me, the most important one has been the various genome projects and getting access to all this genetic information that. Uh, together with bioinformatics has allowed us to do a lot of research in silico, so to say, and then we go from the computer to the lab. We have certain predictions that we can then uh, confirm in the lab. And uh, now as I'm working with extracellular matrix proteins that when mutated often cause inherited disease, uh, rare disorders, uh, then the possibility that uh, mouse genetics offer us, and we have also been working with zebrafish genetics, it gives us the possibility to uh, analyze the function of a particular protein in an in vivo setting. We can then also uh, you know, bring in the mutation through a knock-in approach. We can see the consequences of this mutation and thereby understand the pathogenesis of inherited connective tissue disease. And this would, of course, have been uh, completely impossible at that level uh, in earlier times. So a lot has happened since James Watson and Francis Crick discovered Absolutely. DNA yeah. in, in the decades over there. And you were also touching upon a really important subject that I think uh, many societies are asking today, uh, the value of research in everyday setting. And yeah. you work in an area where those findings can be transferred to improve the health and general medical things in the population in societies. Mm -hmm. um, is there an example of a finding uh, that you could share with us that has benefited societies or uh, human health from your perspective? I, I mean, there are many such findings or results. I can, however, give an example where I myself or we were a bit involved um, 
and that was actually a bit of a sidetrack from my normal connective tissue research. We were working on enzymes called transglutaminases that are involved in the cross-linking of connective tissues to make them more stable. And then there were other colleagues of ours that were studying the gluten-sensitive diseases, I mean, like celiac disease, this uh, inflammatory bowel uh, disease. And uh, it was known that patients with this gluten sensitivity, they develop autoantibodies. And uh, they actually, these colleagues, uh, Dr. Schuppan and his people showed these antibodies are directed against transglutaminases. So that now gave a diagnostic uh, possibility. I mean, earlier you have been uh, doing things to detect these antibodies like uh, uh, slicing up uh, monkey esophagus and doing immunofluorescence analysis to see if there are autoantibodies. It became possible now to have a normal serological assay, I mean, an ELISA-style assay to diagnose these patients. But then we were also working on uh, blistering skin disease, dermatitis herpetiformis, and there was the suspicion that that was somehow connected to uh, the other gluten-sensitive diseases like celiac disease. And we started studying the autoantibodies in this disease form and found that these were directed to another member of the uh, transglutaminase family of enzymes. Then again, other people later on started studying certain kinds of uh, neurological disorders that again turned out to be due to a gluten-induced uh, autoimmune response to transglutaminases. So suddenly we had now a whole group of diseases that were due to uh, gluten sensitivity and we were able to diagnose this differentially by you know, using assays for, for the corresponding autoantibodies. And in end effect, it meant that patients could get an adequate treatment, which in this case is rather easy, simply avoiding gluten-containing uh, foodstuff. And I mean, for celiac disease, that is nothing new, but for example, these people with the skin disorders or with the neurological disorders, that they could actually be, if not healed, greatly helped by simply keeping a stringent diet. That was rather sensational. And that was, you know, the kind of thing that you enjoy being involved in. It's an absolutely magnificent finding and, you know, the knowing that you have helped somebody and, you know, the benefit of their lives, yeah. it must feel absolutely wonderful. Yeah. Um, how have you seen the role of biobanks in your years uh, working in this research field? So, for example, here in Finland, uh, biobanks are more visible right now yeah. and people are more willing to give their little parts into the repository of huge DNA uh, sequences and knowledge there. Ha have they helped your work in the research area? Yeah, I, I mean, we use the biobanks because typically when we uh, try to understand a disease mechanism in typically inherited connective tissue disease. We first, you know, go from the protein chemistry to the mouse genetics or zebrafish genetics in some cases. Then we can get mechanistic ideas about what is the pathogenesis. But I mean, then 
you have to take the next step over to human to confirm that there is a similar uh, mechanism occurring in human. And of course, normally you can do not, not do any experimental work in human, but that's where the biobanks uh, come in. I mean, then you can analyze uh, biopsies or, or, or cell cultures collected from patients and see that they appear to have the same features as what you have observed in your mouse disease model. This is not a paid commercial, but probably <laughs> we can say that, you know, yeah. if you are able to volunteer for your local biobank, yeah. that will help the human yeah. guide kind yeah. greatly. Yeah. Um, so you have seen quite many uh, wonderful findings during your research career already in the years where you've been working, but what are you currently working on? What kind of magic are you doing right now, so to say? <laughs> no, no real magic, but again... Uh, we are focusing on uh, the mutations in connective tissue proteins that can uh, cause so-called rare disease or inherited connective tissue disease. You know, the word rare disease is not actually appropriate because if you look at every single of these diseases, you might only have a thousand patients per year in Europe or, or even less. But if you take all these rare diseases together, they make out a couple of percent of the population that is actually suffering from some kind of rare disease. And the problem with rare disease is that there's no money to be made from producing pharmaceutical agents and so on because the patient groups that you can get that are so small. So we are studying primarily at the moment um, collagen type 6. This is a collagen that when mutated causes muscular dystrophies in part very severe lethal muscular dystrophies. And we have also done a lot of work on uh, cartilage proteins that when mutated cause chondrodysplasia, I mean disease with dwarfism and joint um, osteoarthritis, early onset osteoarthritis. And we are trying to look at this mechanistically and see what is happening? Is it that the mutated protein cannot even be secreted but accumulates inside the cell and eventually kills the cell? Or is the protein perhaps um, secreted but causes uh, damage once it reaches the extracellular matrix, which is then perhaps not adequately assembled and so on? And uh, based on these observations, one can then start thinking about therapeutic approaches, for example, using what's called chemical chaperones, I mean, low molecular weight amphiphilic compounds that help proteins to fold better, that could improve secretion, or in other cases, when the secreted proteins actually causing the damage, then it would be better perhaps to stimulate intracellular protein degradation, perhaps it's better that the protein is removed rather than that is secreted and toxic outside the cell. And the idea that we and of course the whole scientific community have is that if we can identify mechanisms, we can find pharmaceutical agents that do not need to be specific for a particular uh, mutations, but is, so to say, in general, hitting the mechanism. So 
when it comes to connective tissue mutations and the diseases they cause, they have, you know, there are many hundreds, if not thousands, diseases, each of these with very few patients. But if you now instead hit the mechanism, you can be able to treat a large number of patients with different uh, mutations with the same pharmaceutical agents. So, so that is, so to say, where we and you know, the research field are aiming. And just as you said, it's definitely not magic, but hard work and years of hard work, because in this area, research projects do take their time until we can find some really conclusive findings. Um, Are there any other big projects that you would still like to, or big findings that you would like to find and achieve during your research career on top of the project that you already described? Oh, I'm trying to think now. This is getting <laughs> difficult. Uh, but um, in general, I am, you know, by heart a protein chemist. So I do work in a disease context, but I love my protein chemistry. And we have in recent years starting to do really uh, high-resolution structural work. We have been working with X-ray crystallography, with, with um, uh, synchrotron uh, scattering, and with, with um, single-particle electron microscopy, and we are perhaps heading towards cryo-electron uh, microscopy and uh, combining these methods to get really good molecular models with, with atomic resolution and uh, this is not the single question that I'm asking there but uh, that's a direction that I would still very much enjoy heading in. So the coming years will be very very interesting because this is very future oriented work that you're doing. <laughs> Um, I think we have many young researchers and scientists who will be listening to this podcast. And you, as uh, someone who has worked decades in the field and right now working as a professor of biochemistry and director of the Biochemistry Institute of the Faculty of Medicine in the University of Cologne, would you like to or would you have any advice for the young generation of scientists who would sort of like to have same kind of career working in research in your field as you've had? Certainly, but first a small correction. Since a few months I'm formally retired, it doesn't make much of a difference. I'm in the lab every day, more or less anyway, but uh, I have less responsibilities and more free time. And uh, quite a lot of this free time I actually spend with young PhD students and so on, meeting them in uh, work group seminars every week and so on. But I mean, when it comes to real career planning, number one, I try to push them into trying to be as geographically mobile and flexible as possible. I mean, I could never, ever have had the kind of career that I've had if I had stayed in in Lund all my life or if I had just done a short postdoc and then gone back to learn. So, so, I mean, for me, it was essential that every time it was time to change jobs, go for the best possibility wherever in the world this possibility occurs. And I mean, uh, many young people are a bit scared of this. And it's also not always easy if you have, you know, social commitments, uh, family, etc. But you, you know, if possible, try to be as geographically mobile as possible. 
And I think the second thing is not to be worried about um, going into new research areas. And, um, you, you, you know, when I came to Cologne, I was still very much the classical protein chemist. And then I came into a scientific community where most genetics was uh, really a big thing. I, I mean, Klaus Rajewski, who was a professor here, is one of the founding fathers of modern mass genetics with a Crelox P system and so on. And, uh, you know, I realized that this could give me completely new possibilities if I got into this. And we invested a lot of work at the beginning, but it has over the years really paid off. So, so, I mean, be willing to take a few risks and, and, and go into completely new areas and, and new methodology. So, in, in short, be international and take calculated risks. Exactly. Yep. How, how do you see, if I may ask, uh, about the multidisciplinary nature mm -hmm. of science. So uh, as in the beginning, you were said many funding instruments really direct researchers towards working with their own field and to complete the uh, projects and so on in time in order to get yeah. the funding. Yeah. But that doesn't leave too much room for multidisciplinarity, real uh, exchange of ideas with other fields. How do you see the role of multidisciplinarity growing in the future? Yeah, I mean, multidisciplinarity is absolutely essential because, I mean, doing the kind of work we do to do where we might publish a knockout mass and a crystal structure in the same paper, you know, we couldn't do this without collaborating with uh, a number of different disciplines. And uh, in addition, being a biochemist, a theoretician in the medical faculty, you know, having a direct dialogue with the clinicians is also very relevant and quite often you get ideas from the clinicians and I believe therefore that we should try to develop multidisciplinarity. For example, we have set up a set of graduate schools here in Cologne and people who come from a natural science background, they are forced to take certain uh, medical lecture courses and vice versa. The uh, physicians that go into our MD-PhD programs might have to take lectures in physics or, or chemistry. That's a way of pushing people a little bit. But again, I believe that these things have to be spontaneous and should not be, so to say, organized by politicians in the framework of, of big funding schemes. So just as you said, maybe we have to go back in time to find the natural curiosity that yeah. the early researchers had in their day. Yeah. If you look back at your career, is there something particular that you would like the world to remember you from? Not a single thing. I, I think I've been one of these people who have worked uh, consistently and uh, systematically on you know, a certain set of molecules and proteins and also a certain set of diseases. But I cannot say that there was the one highlight. Right, so it was a yeah. team effort in a way. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Um, well, as I was already saying, your CV is, is very, very impressive. And now, on top of everything, you have also been conferred the honorary doctor doctorate at the University of Oulu. And, well, simple question. How does it feel to be like to be conferred as an honorary doctor? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel 
extremely honored. And, and I must say, I, I, when I received the, the email from the dean of the faculty in Oulu, you know, I was sitting in a hotel room in uh, Belgium, I remember still. And, uh, you, you know, I, I really felt extremely honored and, and grateful for this. And uh, this was not just getting an honorary doctorate for, from some university, but from a university that I respect and appreciate very much. So, so a great honor and a crowning of a long career to my mind. That sounds absolutely wonderful. Um, Mats, we've been talking during this interview about your background, education, the future of biomedical research and so on. But for every interview of every honorary doctor, we've reserved one question that we ask from everyone. And I think it's time to ask that question from you. And it is very simple, but it might be also the most difficult question of this interview. So if you were asked to describe University of Oulu with only three words, what would those words be? Dynamic, stringent in research and teaching, and then I can't say it in one word, but very committed to serving the regional community. I mean thereby that Ulo has this profile of promoting studies that is helpful for the northern communities of this world, for Arctic communities and so on. And I think this is a fantastic way of using your geographical situation. Thank you much. This has been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for coming. And I, and I think all of us hope that we will be seeing and meeting you here in Oulu as one of the honorary doctors of our university. I mean, thank you very much also. And I'm really looking forward to coming up to Oulu again. Mm-hmm.